0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So years ago, I had a neighbor who told me a story uh, about a traumatic experience that he had as a child and how it impacted him. He Grew up in a country that was in the midst of civil war when he was a child. In fact, he saw his grandfather slaughtered. Um, So his parents, out of concern for his safety, sent him away to live in a Catholic boarding school in a different part of the country. And something happened there as a young boy that really shaped his perspective on God, on faith, on Christianity as a whole. In this large facility, he said, that there was this one section that was off limits to the children, and there was a particular staircase that the kids were not allowed to go up. One day, one of the kind, sort of well-meaning nuns asked that he go quickly sneak up the stairs to go grab something for her, and it was going to be okay. And so he's running up the stairs, and as he almost gets to the top of the stairs, he sees a priest turn the corner, and before he was able to explain himself, this leader put his foot on the boy's forehead and kicked him down the stairs, the full flight of stairs. And as you can imagine, this was a very traumatizing experience for him, especially because the boy had been led to believe that this spiritual leader didn't just represent the church, but represented God himself, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. And years, decades later, here he is in my backyard telling me it was like God kicked me in the face down the stairs. He recovered from this physical injury, but he experienced a wound that he never quite recovered from. It was something debilitating that he carried with him into his life, one that shaped, sadly shaped his image of God and the church and Christianity as a whole. The University of Michigan conducted a study where they, they sent recipients through MRIs and during the process of imaging they asked the, these uh, participants to think back and to recall one of their most painful moments of social and emotional pain. To retrieve a memory of their, their sort of deepest wound in their souls. And what they found was that the brain was activated in the very same places and in very similar ways as when someone experiences physical pain. It was almost identical. And and really, there's no arguing it that wounds are not just bodily wounds. C.S. Lewis once said mental pain, and what I believe he meant here was emotional pain. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. So that emotional pain that people have experienced in their lives, and particularly today, the emotional pain that people have experienced in their lives around the church is processed similarly to physical trauma. And yet, for many, it's hard to identify, it's very hard to admit and to put language to, and it takes a lot longer to heal from. And so today what I want to do, because we are in between series, what I want to do is I want to address a very particular topic today. And what I want to address is the topic of church hurt I'm sort of breaking all the rules of how preaching normally happens here, and we're going to focus in on a specific topic. Now, church hurt can be described as pain experienced within relationships to an individual or a group within the church. It can include spiritual abuse. It can include sexual abuse by a trusted leader. It can include emotional manipulation and other forms of trauma and so many more examples. And I know examples that are present in this room today. And because of the significant place that the church holds in our lives and in the world, pain experienced within the church can be very disorienting. And for a lot of people, and here's the connection to our passage for a lot of people, it can be debilitating. In the Bible, the church is referred to as the body of Jesus Christ. And like in a body, Paul says, if one member suffers, we all suffer together. Your trauma is our trauma. Your suffering is our suffering. Now, I, I want to acknowledge that I've been hesitant to talk about this topic of church hurt for a very long time. I don't actually even want to today. And the reason for this is for number, number one, I have hurt people. And I'm not just talking about like I've made mistakes. No, I have sinned against people. I have been harsh I have been negligent, I have been harmful with my words, I have mishandled authority over the years, and I get sick to my stomach when I think about the fact that when someone hears the term church hurt, they think about reality. Another reason I'm hesitant is because it's such a broad topic. I I, I know that not every pain that is experienced in and around the church is necessarily church hurt. Example of this, a few years ago, no, actually, about a decade ago, my wife and I were on a trip. And while we were away, uh, a young individual from our church messaged me through Facebook. I found a few messages in Facebook inbox. This is one of the many reasons I do not use Facebook anymore, by the way. Um, And... Because we were on vacation, I didn't get these messages, and the first message was this individual telling me about some really painful experiences, really, really dark thoughts that they were having. The follow-up message from just a few days later that, again, I didn't get was then telling me that their pain was my fault because I was negligent and I didn't respond and I left them in that moment, and I was to blame for their pain. So this was a perceived hurt. But it wasn't a hurt that I could bear responsibility for. And so examples like this have made this conversation about church hurt sort of difficult. It's muddied the water, and it's very difficult to to say this is church hurt, this is not church hurt. That's been another reason why I'm just hesitant to talk about it. And then, honestly, I I do not feel particularly equipped to have this conversation. I feel about this small right now, uh, even broaching this topic about church hurt, This is nothing I ever set out to know about or to study. This is nothing our church is distinctly equipped to to deal with. But the thing that we can't escape is that Reality Church continues to be a place where people come after really difficult and painful religious experiences. I'm looking at the faces of people right now that have shared their stories. We never tried to be this. We definitely never marketed Ourselves as, like, you know, come, you know, heal from church hurt or something like that. But I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people in this church that are right now processing through their prior painful religious experience. And what I wanna do is I wanna humbly steward that well. I wanna steward that well. So, what I wanna do this week is look at this passage here in Mark chapter two, the kind of healing that we see here. If you're paying attention, you should be saying, well, this is a very specific kind of healing, and I totally acknowledge that. What we see here is a man comes to Jesus, he's forgiven of his sins, and then he's healed by Jesus to rise and walk on his feet again. But there are features in this story that I think are applicable to this bigger, broader conversation, especially with how many people would describe their pain as paralyzing, debilitating, So this is not going to be a comprehensive message uh, about church hurt. This is not going to be an impressive message about how we heal from church hurt. What I simply want to do today is to turn your attention to the scriptures, to offer you the hope that you can be healed through Jesus Christ, and then ask you to begin to envision reality, what it would look like to be a community where people come and experience the healing of Jesus Christ in our midst. Is that fair? That's where we're going today. So if you're taking notes, let's begin with this point. Come to Jesus. Let's look again in verses one through three. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is speaking of Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now imagine this scene with me. Jesus is back in Capernaum. Previously, this was the place where he was performing miracles and people people were coming from all over the place in droves just to get a sight of this miracle worker and just like this scene previously in Mark chapter one, people are piling into this space to see Jesus. Jesus leaves for a period of time. He's back and guess what? All the people are back to see him again. And there's no room, not even at the door. He can't even get in the front door. In fact, Mark emphasizes this point twice by telling us, verse 4, they could not get near to him. It was so packed, they couldn't even squeeze their way in. And so what we see here is an environment where certain individuals found no entry into the place where Jesus was to be encountered. People found it hard to press in. Now, in churches at times, this can be very explicit and intentional. If you are X, Y, and Z, you cannot be here. But like in this account, it can also be very unintentional. This can be the kind of place where people, for whatever reason, find it difficult to sort of make their way in where they face barriers to experiencing Christ-centered community. Sometimes they're cultural barriers. Other times they are relational barriers. Most of the time, though, those barriers are blind spots to the people who are already in the room. I'm going to have a hard time even explaining to you what those barriers could be among us reality because I've been here so long. They're blind spots to me. It's going to be the person who comes in the door for the first time that's going to be able to point out our blind spots and those barriers to penetrating and coming in. So already we're seeing that there are obstacles to faith and belonging that we have to address as a church in order to be a place of healing, even if those barriers were never intentional in the first place. We just going to have to acknowledge that. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Some people are going to come to Jesus the conventional way. Other people are going to come to Jesus through a hole in the roof. Some are going to come to Jesus on their own two feet. Other people are going to come to Jesus flat on their back. How you get here doesn't matter. What matters is that you come to Jesus. If you are looking for the ideal moment and the ideal circumstance and the ideal feelings within and the ideal community, stop, you will never find it. What's the point? Just come to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said better to come to Christ through the ceiling than not at all. Better to come through the ceiling than not at all. Now, notice the difference between the religious leaders and the paralytic and his friends in this scene, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So one group is moving towards Jesus as pathetic as and as embarrassing as it may seem, one group is making their way to Jesus, the other group is just sitting there. I just imagine their arms folded in the corner. But I I wanna ask you this, who's experiencing the healing? Who's experiencing real life change? Whose lives are causing the crowds to say, oh my gosh, we have never seen anything like this? It is better to be a helpless person lowered through the roof than a critical snob sitting in the corner. And this is very pertinent because in our cultural moment, religious cynicism is seen as a virtue You are not truly an enlightened person unless you have made XYZ comments about all the things that are wrong with Christianity. And you're really not into the depths of your faith unless you've passed through the waters of cultural deconstruction. No, it is better to come into Christ-centered community as messy as that is, than to remain a skeptical on the fringes. There will be obstacles. You're gonna experience fears. You're gonna experience trust issues. There are gonna be doubts. You're gonna have questions. There are gonna be triggers. There are gonna be moments where you have flashbacks of pain. There are gonna be moments where it feels like the whole world is against you coming through that door. But you have to be tenacious. You have to be tenacious. And you've honestly gotta ask yourself this question. Where else would I go? I love that scene in John chapter six, Jesus says some very difficult things, namely eat my flesh, drink my blood. 5,000 people that came to be fed by Jesus, and they're like, "Um, that that just got real, we're out of here. Jesus whittles a group of 5,000 plus people down to 12. He turns to his disciples and he asks, are you gonna go too? And Peter says, where else are we gonna go? alone have the words of eternal life don't let anything including your own pride stand in the way of casting yourself on the forgiving and healing mercy that is found in Jesus Christ and from discover and from discovering that that grace and healing that is found within Christian community come to Jesus. the second thing we see here are you guys still with me I know, heavy topic. Um, The second thing we see here is carried by others. Carried by others. So it's clear from this passage that this paralytic man needs to get to Jesus. And just like us today, there is no hope for his life apart from Jesus. But here's the problem. He can't get there on his own. So when we look at this account in Mark, we are intended to see ourselves. We are intended to identify within this story. But first, we are not the friends. We do not begin as these strong-legged, able friends that are willing to do anything for anyone yes God is shaping us to become those people but that is not us initially we are not the son of man with unmatched authority in heaven and on earth we are not the heroes of the story hopefully we are not the skeptics and the skeptical folks on the sidelines with our arms crossed you know sneering at others although maybe some of us are that today who are we who are we We are those who come weak and we are those who come broken. We are to identify with the paralytic. In fact, I would go as far as to say there is no hope for us in this story if we are not first willing to identify with the paralytic. Otherwise, it's just a moral lesson that doesn't heal you. We are those who come wounded by life, wounded by sin, wounded by sadly other Christians, we are those that lack the power to heal ourselves. We are those who even lack the strength to get in the room where healing is found. We talk an awful lot about come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, but are we willing to be carried to him? Are we willing to be humble and carried on our backs to him? Look at me again, verse 3 through 4. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. I'm sorry, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. They carry him. They remove the uh, roof. They make the opening. They lower him down. I cannot stress This point enough for us today. We need others in order to experience Jesus in a life-changing way. We need others. I understand that, and I know that this is the problem for a lot of people that have experienced church hurt, and here's the problem. Relationships were the place of sin. Relationships in the church were the place of manipulation and the place of hurt. For some, church was the place of pain. Like it's the epicenter of wounds. But relationships will also be the place of forgiveness. Relationship will also be the place of building trust. Relationships will be the place of healing. The, The gospel of Jesus reminds us that the place of our wounding then becomes the place of our healing. So let me just show you how important community is here. Look with me again in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he, Jesus, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So whose faith does Jesus commend and respond to here? Theirs. Pastorally, pastorally, I love this. Theologically, I'm very uncomfortable. I don't even know what to do with this. This does not fit within our framework of theology. He looks at their faith, and then he's forgiven. What? So rather than take the rest of our time trying to explain that theologically, let's just let it be what it is. Dallas Willard explains it this way. When faith begins to move, it moves in groups. When you are with other people, your faith is affected by the totality of faith present. This is why the community of faith is so vital for our healing and growth. The people around you right now are not just people that you have to sort of tolerate in your own personal walk with Jesus. You bump into them and brush shoulders with them on Sunday and maybe if you're really devoted throughout the week, no, These are the means that God has designed to usher in grace and healing into your life. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot leave people to do this on their own. We need people in order to experience God's grace and healing. We need a church community that will believe with us and even as we see here will believe for us when we are struggling to believe ourselves. We, we need a community that carries us when we just aren't able to carry our own weight. We need a community that cares for one another, that is willing to put aside their own convenience and their own comfort to ensure that people are getting into the presence of Jesus. And here's what happens in community. We are challenged to go deeper than we thought we needed to go. This man is being challenged to go deeper than he was ever bargaining for. We need community that will affirm our pain absolutely, but we also need a community that's going to challenge us in our sin. We need both. There is a persistent myth that exists within Christianity today, and it's this that if I'm hurt, then I shouldn't be challenged. That if I'm experiencing hurt in my life, then it is a pass to respond and behave however I want to. The man came to Jesus expecting physical healing. And if we're to be honest, a lot of us come to Jesus for sort of like secondary reasons. We come because we want some sort of healing. We come because... I don't know, we were told that if we're a Christian, we'll never suffer and we'll be happy forever. We come to Jesus because we've hit rock bottom and we don't know where else to turn. We come to Jesus because we're lonely. We come to Jesus because we want to experience some sense of relief from guilt or inner peace, whatever. But instead, Jesus says, initially, "Son, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is the interesting thing to me about this passage. There is no indication that he was intending to be forgiven. He never asks for it. So imagine this scene with me. I have to imagine that as Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, his heart sort of sunk in this moment. Like this is not what I wanted to hear right now. What are you talking about? How many times have we said or at least thought in our hearts, how many times have we asked this question or said this statement? This is not what I want to hear right now this is not what I want to hear right now. When someone is challenging us or someone is pressing into areas of our hearts that we just don't, we want to neglect and pretend aren't there, how how often we say, just, that's not what I want to hear. I have to imagine that this is not what this man wanted to hear, but it's what he needed to hear. All this way he's come, all of the efforts of this friend Uh, These friends tearing open a roof, I I think this is before like homeowners policy, so I don't even know what the damage, I don't even know what that's going to look like, who pays for that or whatever. All their hopes go out the window as soon as Jesus starts talking about sin. Or at least he thinks. First Peter 2 would say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. So what this means is that we cannot be closed off to the idea that of, of Jesus healing us from hurt may also involve Jesus dealing with our sin at the very same time. Not in a way that minimizes pain. And hear me correctly, not in a way that minimizes the actions of other people against us but in a way that brings deeper healing than we could have ever imagined when we came to Jesus in the first place. The point here is that significant healing cannot take place in our lives without reconciliation with God and reconciliation with God cannot occur without first repentance. And so regardless of how innocent your pain is, look at this paralytic, what did he do to deserve this? Nothing. His pain isn't something that he's responsible for, necessarily. So regardless of our innocence in our pain, there is still a deep need to be at peace with God. And so this is where Jesus begins with this man, son, your sins are forgiven. We can't get to the healing without first coming through forgiveness. It's not accessible. Now, does God care about our bodies? Does God care about our minds and our hearts and our relationships? Of course. On the day that Jesus returns, the Bible says that all things will be renewed. He'll wipe away every tear. Our bodies will be renewed. Our minds and our hearts will be renewed. Our relationships will be restored. But the priority at the heart of the gospel is that we've got to be made right with God. We've got to be made right with God. And that is what Jesus came to do. 1 Peter 3 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus come to bring us back to God? And so as a church, we need people who will graciously and hear this word gently. Graciously and gently move us towards the deeper healing that Jesus intends in our lives through both healing and forgiveness carried by others the last point I want us to look at here is rise and take up your mat rise and take up your mat verse 9 through 11 which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the son of man who's spoken of there Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, we are on the Easter tide. that's resurrection language there, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now there's a feature here that I want us to pay attention to. What was Jesus doing when these men first tried to come to him? Preaching the word. He's preaching. And then again, here Jesus says says, rise, take up your mat. So with words, Jesus is able to do for this man something that no one, including himself, was ever able to do for him. He heals. And this kind of healing, just like faith, comes through hearing the word of Christ. Healing happens where the gospel is preached. And there's something about what Jesus says to him. Because he doesn't just say, son, you're healed. Ah. He commands him, rise, pick up your bed. So evidently, the son of man who has authority over sin and our bodies also has the authority to make demands of our life. Who would have thought? One of the church fathers from the 4th and 5th century, said this, take up your bed. Carry the very mat that once carried you. Change places so that what, used, uh, that what was proof of your sickness may now give testimony to your soundness. Your bed of pain becomes the sign of healing. Its very weight, the measure of the strength that has been restored to you. So when we rise and we take up our mat, whatever that may be, the church fathers would see this as sort of symbolic of things in our lives. So when we take up our mat and we rise, we begin to be living testimonies of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ within us. We are commanded to carry that which used to carry us. So what used to be the sign of our hurt now becomes the testimony of our healing. The wounds of our past that used to define us now are a witness to new life in Jesus Christ who alone defines us. No longer defined by these things, no longer wallowing in it, refusing to sort of roll over into victimhood, refusing to allow our lives to be defined by hurt, but now rising up and carrying it. So let me ask you, what wound, pain, or experience have you now become dependent on? What is that mat in your life that at this point you wouldn't even know how to live without? You become so dependent on this thing that you, you can't even envision what life would look like on your own two feet without being dependent on this thing. Because it's defined you for so long. And here's the sad thing. We can allow the wounds of our past to so define us that we become dependent on it. And we don't want the healing because we're obsessed with the wound. We don't want to be on our two feet because we don't know what life would look like without it. Verse 12... And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is our vision as a a church. To become a people so transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus among us that people begin to marvel and glorify God, not because of anything in our lives, but because of what God has done in our midst. A community where the healing work of the Spirit is so evident that people say, like the crowds said in Jesus' day, we've never seen anything like this. There is nothing in this world that can offer what we are finding here. Again, I want to invite you to imagine this. To picture this in your minds and heart, a vision of being a church where people experience healing. Not through a specific program, not through extensive classes that help you discover your wholeness or something like that, but by simply being a Christ-centered church that makes Jesus known in life-changing ways by, by through, through, through word and deed, through the love of Jesus Christ being preached and through the love of Jesus Christ being embodied. By being faithful and making much of Jesus, where people are humble enough to admit their need for Jesus, where people are humble enough to come flat on their back, and where they are carried by others to Jesus, where men, women, and children have tenacity. a single focus on getting people into the presence of Jesus Christ, trusting that that's where the healing is found. Father, we we thank you.